This episode is brought to you by Training Wheels. That was perfect. You know, because everybody needs them sometimes. That's right. You put them on your uh, on your legs, and they help you walk. You gotta scoot before you can walk. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You put them uh, in your pockets, and they help you adult. Oh, scoot, scoot, motherfuckers! Scoot, scoot. Oh, scoot, scoot, goddamn. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, training wheels. Get your own today from a yeah. responsible adult. Brought to you by Today's episode is also brought to you by Meister High End. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Meister High End is exactly what it sounds like. It's high-end accessories for the cannabis connoisseur. Marijuana is now legal in California. Woo! As well as a bunch of other states. High five. Air five. Ready? Yep. Why are you uh, high-fiving me so much? <laughs> that's just how I do it. Damn, that was a lot. Okay, I, my I, hand I, sting. I 45. Please. Good. Uh, so, weed is now legal. So everybody go to GetMeister.com and get yourself some accessories for your legal weed. All kinds of stash trays, fog pens, grinders, things of that sort. Music sold separately. That's right. Royalty-free, so it's also of no charge. But you have to buy it. It's one of those things where you buy it and they put it on your receipt at zero dollars and zero cents. I hate that because it's a transaction. Yeah. Your bank always tries to overcharge you. Why do we got to bring ink and paper into this? I don't know. Why can't this just be an old school barter type situation? Why can't this just be a handshake agreement? Yeah. Come on, man. Well, we're here at the Natural Habitat Podcast to bring back that handshake agreement because that's all we do here. We, We high five 45 times. We shake hands, we dap, we have all these different types of handshakes actually that we do when we're not we recording. Chew bubblegum and kick ass. Yep, and we're and all fresh out, out of, of bubblegum. Oh, wait, I was going to say I <laughs> don't have an ass. Oh, damn it. Yeah, but I got it wrong. That's what happens. Today we're getting shit wrong. Part three. The Natural Habitat Podcast. Hello, everybody, boys and girls. Welcome to the Natural Habitat Podcast. (coughs) My name is Mikey Booyah. My name is Lemurian Joe. And we are here (coughs) with part three of our Alternative Human History episode uh, mini mini series. It is now. It's a mini series. And this is the climactic end to the mini series. We've been talking about um, ancient Atlanteans. (coughs) Lemurians, um, Martians, Hebrews, and the inner battle and war that has been waging for hundreds of thousands of years that has now brought us to where we are. Billions? Millions, at least. But millions of years. Yeah. And here we are today. Yeah, and I mean, if you have an open mind and you can see past all the bullshit, that you that's been beaten into your fucking memory your whole life, mm-hmm. then, then you can assume possibilities, right? You could assume that you know maybe there's a lot of shit we don't know, right? 
there's probably so much more shit that we don't know that we've forgotten or lost than than we've ever learned since. And that is an understatement. And it's hard to think about. It's hard to fathom something like that. But when you think about the Dark Ages, we burned up everything. Yeah. All ancient knowledge. Millions and millions of years worth of knowledge that had been handed down generation to generation by people who were in a part of their community as the historian. You think about this. In ancient religions and ancient peoples and, and things like that, there was people that were dedicated to be the guy that was the storyteller, you know? There was somebody who was responsible for fucking telling the stories and making them in a way so that you remember them and teaching them in a way so that you, like, like in form of song or in form of, like, or like short a story. Or like a parable kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Something with a lesson or a moral. All these things were taught this way so that you would never forget it so that it could travel from generation to generation without losing its potency yeah you know what i'm saying so like everything seems like a a hymn or a fucking like, like a a tale or an epic or a fucking you know but they were written or um told that way for a reason to make you realize that you know all this shit comes from somewhere and this is exactly how i feel about the bible it's more of a history book than a factual thing, you know, or than a, than a thing that you should follow, like a guideline. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it's it tells more about what happened than what you should do. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's not a book of like rules. It's a book of where we've been, you know. And and a lot of times, all this shit gets proved right, you know. And trip on this. I was just I was just tripping on some cool Mandela shit, and. Uh, there's a new thing in the Mandela effect where uh, Moses had horns, like the devil. Dang. In all fucking original Moses, statues, art, everything, all the first things of him have horns. No way. Yeah. It's That's crazy. crazy. So, yeah, yeah. It's really, it's a trip. Um, it, it's, so like what they're talking about in this, about like the peak of heightened enlightenment and like how um, we're we're changing because we're leading up to another shift or whatever. So like we're having a consciousness shift and like all these things. Well, when I'm looking, sitting here at home nerding out and I'm looking at uh, Mandela effect and like um, simulation theory and, and all these other things, and then I and I listen to what they're saying with the ancient knowledge and shit and try to try to come up with my own conclusion. I'm figuring out that, you know, there's endless possibilities to everything. And one of the possibilities could definitely be that um, parallel universes are overlapping right now. And that's what's causing these um, Mandela effect memories or whatever, yeah. you know, and, and it's, and, and we don't notice it because um, parallel universes are dimensions. They're not, um, physical realms. So, like, when two dimensions cross over from each other, there's no distinction between the two. You can't tell the difference. It's yeah. just not by sight or we by don't, anything like that. It's an energy. So, and we don't know what it is because we're trapped in our dimension. Like, we we talked about it recently with the Carl Sagan thing, and like the square fucking paper flying around and shit. But uh, I heard it described a different way by Neil deGrasse Tyson, where he said that if all of existence was in a sheet of paper and if somebody just saw a dot show up and they didn't know what it was and the dot started growing and growing and getting bigger 
and then started shrinking and then turned into a little dot again and then disappeared. And we would bring in all of our scientists and we would try to figure out what created this hole and why it opened and why it was only open for so long and all these different things. But if you were outside of our universe watching it, you would see that a sphere just passed through this plane that we're living on. So it started as the edge of it and then the middle of it and then the other edge. And it was really easy to understand what's happening if you're looking at it from outside. You're like, okay, that totally makes sense. But yeah. it would take the smartest people inside of the line and they still wouldn't be able to figure it out. Yeah, because we're in it instead of, you know, it's just like you said, we're inside of it. So we're trying to figure out from it. It's like the thing that you were talking about with the Tesseract and like how, how you uh, couldn't, you lived in a two dimension. And then when the third dimension comes along, you can't, you can't understand it or yeah. whatever. Well, that's because they're inside of it. But if they were outside of it, like <coughs> you were saying, they'd be able to see just perfectly. And the thing about the sphere that you just said makes total sense, you know? It's just like, it's an energy bubble breaking yeah. through another bubble. So we, so we don't know what it would look like. It would look like something totally unexplainable to us, like memories shifting and shit like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. But uh, let's, uh, let's get back into this, into this uh, feature. Yeah. All right, here we go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hold yeah. on. Come on, Jerry. It's everything. From there, Thoth and friends constructed an entire network of temples and structures along this grid fourth dimensionally, placing them on nodes on the new synthetic Christ consciousness grid they were creating. All of them were made with Fibonacci or golden mean spirals, and all of them were mathematically referred back to the solar cross in Egypt through the Great Pyramid. The creation of all of the sacred sites on the planet were no accident. It was a single consciousness that created them all, from Machu Picchu to Stonehenge to Zaghuan. You name it. There are a few exceptions, but most were created by a single awareness as part of a unity consciousness grid. Although the Great Pyramid was done all at once, many of these ancient structures of the world were made fourth dimensionally and slowly dropped in frequency until they manifested on the third dimension over a long period of time. Richard Hoagland's research brings this forward, but That's he wasn't the first either. They showed how one sacred site is extrapolated from another to another to another. A hot topic of discussion right now are ley lines. These are simply geometric relations between sacred sites. Archaeologists are now finding these huge connections between major spiritual sites in the globe, and now we know why they're connected. These sites had to be built physically so that the Christ consciousness grid could manifest. In a way, think of the physical sites as the wiring of a giant wireless electrical system, and then it needs about 13,000 years of continuous energy flow for it to actually turn on. And just so that you're not left in suspense, yes, the grid was completed. It came to life and is now active, though not really used. Congratulations, Earth. We actually survived. Not only has Thoth told us this in person, but he's also written it down in the Emerald Tablets. These tablets were left in the Great Pyramid thousands of years ago. There are 12 tablets in total, formed from a substance created through alchemical transmutation. They are imperishable, resistant to all elements and corrosion. Their atomic structure is fixed in place, and no change can ever take place. In that respect, they violate the material laws of ionization. Holy shit. Yeah. What the fuck? Are you serious? That's so, some real shit. So Thoth created these fucking tablets that are indestructible and won't become weathered and will never deteriorate to hold his word forever. That's some well, gangster shit. I don't shit. know about Thoth, but maybe he like taught them how to do it or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, but those are real things. That's a trip. These tablets share a great wisdom, and you can read them at over a hundred different levels of consciousness, and you will always understand them Feel free to look up the Emerald Tablets on stuff, Google or you YouTube, you'll find some shit. Them. As you can probably tell, Thoth plays a pretty large role in what happened. 
Most of this information comes from him. Thoth also provided most of this information about the flower of life and its geometric relationship to consciousness with us. And this stuff is tied intimately to the geometry of the universe. Considering the quality and quantity of information that he has shared, it makes you really start considering that this next part can be true. The Great Pyramid has a legendary missing capstone. According to the Emerald Tablets, deep under the Great Pyramid, there's a room called the Hall of Records. This room was not built by Thoth and long predates the Atlantean civilization. Within the Hall of Records is the capstone of the pyramid, which is five and a half inches high, solid gold, and completely holographic image of the Great Pyramid. It has all of the little rooms and everything. However, this leaves us with a 24 square foot piece of the Great Pyramid that's missing. If what Thoth says is true, that missing piece actually belongs to a very special airship that exists on Earth. And the way to the airship is through the Sphinx. The Sphinx, according to Thoth, is not 12,000 years old, but dates back over five and a half million years on Earth. Deep under the Sphinx, about one mile down, is a round room with a flat floor and flat ceiling. Inside this room is the oldest synthetic object on Earth. The object is about two city blocks in size. It's round like a disc and has a flat bottom and top. It is also only about three atoms thick, except for a pattern on the top and bottom which looks like this. This pattern is five atoms thick. Thoth says that it's powered by consciousness, thoughts, and feelings, and connects with your own living Merkaba, which means that it becomes an extension of you and your own energy fields. The ship is also intimately connected with the spirit of the Earth, and is the protector for the whole planet. Thoth built the pyramid the way he did to fit with the ship. When on top of the Great Pyramid, it creates this image from above. The disk ship has a circumference equal to the perimeter of the Great Pyramid. As we discussed in Lesson 11, whenever that ratio appears, life occurs. This ship can only be used by the purest of souls. See, whenever we approach the point in the procession of the equinox where our poles do these shifts, we become very vulnerable. Things often degenerate, and while things become chaotic, there are often other species who wish to take us over. This has always happened, not just with us, but with all evolving consciousness. Every time a takeover seems imminent, a very pure person will find their way to the ship and raise it into the air. The earth and sun will connect with that person and give him or her great power. Then, whatever that person thinks and feels will happen. And think about it. If consciousness is the primary core component of the entire planet, does it not make sense that it would have its own defense mechanism? This defense is an airship that plugs into the earth and the sun, allowing the earth to have protection. Our takeover event actually already happened, the same year the Christ grid was activated. The year was 1989, and we were having some troubles with the Greys, a race of ETs who were slowly plotting takeover due to a previous scuffle we were having. A very pure woman in Peru made the ascension process into the Christ consciousness grid and found the ship. She tuned it to the frequency of the fourth dimension where she raised it through the earth and into the air, and manifested a situation for the Greys to leave. Within a very short time, the Greys Greyly. began getting sick and remained sick for as long as they stayed here. They have been forced to leave for now, and we are once again safe. The ship is a warship in that whatever race is trying to take over, the person will just think them away, think up a situation, and force them to leave. Returning to the events on Atlantis, after completing the complex in Egypt, Thoth and pals returned to Atlantis where they waited for about 200 years until that critical point on the procession of the equinox where the poles would shift. Thoth and they pals. They knew that Atlantis would sink. Sounds like a, like a Saturday morning TV show. Yeah, if I was that pure soul yeah. that was that was like able to fucking think the motherfuckers away or whatever or pick a scenario, I would just think death. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like I'll be like Psh, death. See, like and motherfuckers would just fall right wherever they're standing. Whatever they'd just fall. There'd be body there. That would be it. It'd, it'd, be, it'd, be, it'd be be like an extreme like force choke kind of thing. It, it would be like something you see in a movie. Like yeah, exactly. But a force death. Force and then, death. <laughs> yeah, and then the motherfuckers would be like all die at the same time. Everywhere, everywhere on earth, everybody would just fall right Damn. there. Just drop, weak in the knees. Like, e everybody or just the invading alien species? The invaders. The, the greys or whatever. All right, I didn't know if you were going to use your power for evil because I'm sure you could do that too. 
No, but I mean, like, ultimately, it becomes corrupt, right? Because, like, if anybody who gets a power that big, even if they use the powers for good, eventually they become corruptible because of like special treatment. Yeah. And like, you know, once you once you become God, then you have a fucking God complex. True. You know, so like and and, and even in like a fucking Christian mind if their God is a jealous God, <laughs> but a just God, you know what I'm saying? Like, all that shit. Yeah, that makes sense. That sounds pretty fucking human. Yep. You know? And they would be ready. Previously on Thothan Pals. Holy shit. Thoth, the pole my favorite show. I called it. Oh, the pole shift? Yeah, whoa, what's wrong with your eyes? I don't know. When Thoth first saw signs of the polar shift, they returned to the land of Chem and raised the warship into the sky. They went to Atlantis and picked up the Nikals. The Nikals weren't just passengers though, and each and every being was working in unity to create a very powerful Merkaba around themselves and the ship. They returned to the Great Pyramid and landed the ship on top, forming the Phi Ratio with the Pyramid. And then, it happened. The poles began to shift, and human consciousness began to plummet. Simultaneously, the electromagnetic and magnetic fields of the Earth collapsed, and all life on the planet went into the Great Void the three and a half days of absolute blackness described by many ancient cultures in the world. The Emerald Tablets say that whenever we go through a polar shift, we go through a void space as we change our frequencies for about three and a half days. This is also in the Troano document depicted by three and a half stones painted black. This refers to a time when we go through what science calls the electromagnetic null zone. During the pole shift, a phenomenon takes place where everything just seems to disappear for a certain time. Usually it's between two to four days, and the last time it was three and a half days. Here's where it gets interesting. What happens to us does not usually happen to a normal species, because most advanced species will have their Merkabas handy at the time of the shift. We didn't, due to our little crisis, and we got sucked into the void space without protection. This resulted in us losing our memories. Science realizes that all of our memories are connected through cells in our brains as well as fields around our heads. What is not entirely understood by science yet, at least not directly, is the connection our memories have with the planet itself. We've discussed this before, the magnetics of the Earth affect how we think and act. The Merkaba is an electromagnetic field that you create around your body that can serve as protection from void as you're consciously going through it. What happened to us when we didn't have that protection? It was a clean wipe. When we existed on Atlantis, we were living at a very high level of consciousness in a higher dimension. We had extremely advanced and sophisticated bodies and minds and were capable of practically anything, living in a dimension where molecules were spaced so far apart that consciousness could interact with them without physically moving. It's hard to explain because you can literally shape your environment immediately through your consciousness in these higher frequencies. In that sense, we were creators, knowing and understanding oneness, beings of love. But then we fell. We dropped back down to this place called the third dimension. We also fell in consciousness back to zero. We forgot how to use the pineal gland and it slowly shrunk to the size it is now, like a raisin, where it's supposed to be eyeball size. When this happened, we forgot how to breathe source energy into our bodies and our lifespans went kaput. Eventually, we went from 900 years to what it is today. We had not experienced this dense reality that we had before, at least for a very long time. We were kind of like a supercomputer that gets completely wiped, no operating system or anything. We had these advanced physical bodies, but we didn't know how to use them. This is why today we are so physically advanced compared to pretty much all the other animals in this third dimension. For a time, the survivors of the Atlantean fall, and there were a few, were literally hairy barbarians. We even had to rediscover fire. 
The reason we're having such a hard time finding evidence of Atlantis is because for the most part, the events of Atlantis took place on a much higher dimension than our physical Earth exists on right now. Everything I've drawn of Atlantis can't be taken as that's what it looked like, because it didn't. This landmass did physically exist, but the Atlanteans were not inhabiting that dimension of its existence. If the warship hadn't been protected by the Merkaba, the Nikals would have lost their memories. They retained their memories when the Earth came out of the void and began their work once more. Thoth and one-third of the Nikals went to the Island of the Sun in Bolivia, Aragot and one-third went to Tibet, and Ra and the remaining third went to Egypt, where they waited. Now, we're going to begin bridging the gaps between this story and our current history. In between the fall of Atlantis and the dawn of our first civilizations, who were the Egyptians and the Sumerians, there was a 6,500 year gap between them. What was happening to us in that time? We have to look at this procession chart again. This is where we fell in consciousness, point C, and this was our falling asleep phase too. Thoth, Ra, and the Ascended Masters were waiting until point D. They had to wait for humans to just evolve themselves over a 6,500 year time period until they were advanced enough to actually receive this new information that they were going to provide. Sometime in here was when the flood of Noah occurred. Because of the pole shift, the Earth went through an ice age. This is scientific fact. When the ice melted, it would have caused massive flooding. DNA is the physical manifestation of who you are. It is your soul's physical aspect. What we are seeing in DNA is changes in the codons. There are 64 possible codons in DNA, and humans only have about 22 or so. What we're finding is that there are six more codons being activated within these children, and they are choosing two of the six. These kids are what we call indigo and crystal children, and probably the super psychics as well. Now, this is a chromosome. Basically, what this is, is lots and lots of DNA wrapped into this weird H-like shape. This is located in every cell, and is part of your body of consciousness. What Thoth tells us is that every level of consciousness seen here not only has its own consciousness grid, but its chromosome change as well. The second level, where we are now, has 44 and 2 chromosomes. To any scientist, this is basic biology. The first level, however, has 42 and 2, and this third level has 46 and 2. The fourth and fifth have 48 and 2 and 50 and 2, respectively. The primary physically visible difference between these DNA in all life is height. The first level has an average height of 4 to 6 feet tall. The second level, us, has an average height of 5 to 7 feet. Third are about 10 to 16 feet, which we are about to translate to. Fourth is 30 to 35 feet, and the last is 50 to 60. You may remember a being named Metatron, the Hebrew Archangel who is the perfection of what humanity is to become. He was 55 feet tall, that guy. The last two heights are far in the distant future for us, though. That's crazy. 55 fucking feet tall, man. Yeah. Now, like, there's always been stories of giants. Yeah. And there's always been, like, stories of people finding um, giant human bones or, like, things like that. And then there's also stories about people purposely covering up those finds. Yeah. So, who knows? Yeah, and there's, uh, there's lots of stories in history of people living, you know, to be 500, 700 years old, and they yeah. just say it like it's no big deal. Yeah, like, and, okay. and there's <laughs> some people that live in China and other places that have lived to like 130, 140 years old, like it's nothing. Yeah. And, and, and so that just shows like a hint of a possibility. Um, the tallest man in the world is Chinese. And he's a true living giant. If you look at him, he looks down on Shaq like Shaq's a fucking midget. And that's just nuts. Yeah, that's crazy. And I, I also learned when I was looking up the tallest guy in China that um, the Michael Myers mask is actually a William Shatner mask spray painted white. Yeah. Do you know that? Yeah. You did? No. I didn't know that. That's, that's crazy. a new fact. New, brand new. <laughs> this yeah. is a place in Egypt today called Abu Simbel. The first thing you notice is that these statues are huge. 
But with the information about the DNA, Huge. this paints a different picture. These beings would be in the 60-foot range if they were to stand. They were at the fifth level of consciousness. These beings on a different wall are 35 feet tall. Fourth level of consciousness. Here are some third levels as well. Archaeologists saw this and thought that it meant that the man was just much more important than the woman. When in actuality, the kings of Egypt had five different names, <coughs> one for every level of consciousness. Some of the kings were even able to translate into different dimensions, and that's how they guided the population with the power of the gods. Crazy. In Egypt, according to today's top archaeologists and researchers, the Egyptians and Sumerians both began their civilizations right around the same time from each other, within a few hundred years or so. Both of these civilizations emerged out of nowhere with perfect writing abilities that were not improved upon since. When they first emerged, they were extremely sophisticated and clear, and slowly degenerated over generations. No archaeologist can explain how this happened or explain how it could have happened. They placed Egypt and Sumer into a special classification called stair-step evolution. What happened was, one day Egypt got its language, full and complete. Then the knowledge leveled off, and then it got another massive leap a little while later. Then suddenly, they knew everything about water and moat systems, just perfect. Then, a little time later, BAM! They're masters of hydraulics. How did Egypt and Sumer do this? Well, this is what Thoth said. When we were evolving on our own for 6,500 years, Ra and the Ascended Masters were waiting in an underground city beneath the Great Pyramid. We'll come back to this in a bit. Thoth's son, Tat, formed a group called the Tat Brotherhood, which is a secret group that still exists today <coughs> as protectors and keepers of the sacred temples. Today, they're still connected to the Ascended Masters. So about 6,000 years ago, some members of the Tat Brotherhood would wait until they would meet someone who could understand what they were going to teach them. When they found someone, they would just tune their frequencies to the third dimension and walk up and tell them information flat out. They said, hey, if you do this and this, this happens. The Egyptians would say, wow, look at that. Then they would go underground, wait another little while, and repeat the process. Over a short period of time, the Egyptian and Sumerian evolution shot up in stair steps. As for the Sumerians, they also received a more detailed story by those who were assisting them. They described to the Sumerians in all of the details they remembered. They said, this is the history of the planet, write it down. The Sumerians knew about the procession of the equinox because they were told it by the Nicals from Atlantis. After this stair-step period, we began to fall asleep further. Things got worse once more. It was our falling sleep stage of procession, and although the Nicals had given us a boost, we were consciously dozing off. On that note, it's time for the story about the city under the pyramid. Keep an open mind about this because there is very little proof for what I'm about to say. For over 40 years, Drunvalo Melchizedek has been studying human consciousness through sacred geometry and spiritual teachers and masters all over the world. In 1996, he was contacted by a source in Egypt who said that something incredible had been discovered. A stone stele came out of the ground between the paws of the Sphinx into the daylight. They removed it and dug into the earth beneath the Sphinx. There they found a room with three tunnels leading off of it. One of the tunnels, which went to the Great Pyramid, had another tunnel coming off it, and it was shielded by a wall of light. Bullets could not pass through this field, and people could not even get close to it without feeling like they're going to die. The Egyptian government found a particular person who could turn off this field. They also had brought in Paramount Studios to film it, as they had filmed the opening of King Tut's tomb. They had a good relationship with Egypt. The government wanted several million dollars from Paramount, but at the last minute they asked for an extra one and a half million under the table. Paramount was outraged, and they backed off. Things were silent for about three months. Then, Drunvalo heard from a source again, who was involved in all this, who said that three men shut off the light field and went inside. They found themselves inside a very large building that went on for miles underground, which was really the edge of a giant underground city, which was really just one giant building. Then, a little while later, an Egyptian archaeologist named Larry Hunter began describing the same thing, but more detailed. He said that the city was six and a half by eight miles wide, and twelve stories deep, and the city was outlined by specific temples in Egypt. The three pyramids are lined up with Orion's belt, 
but there are also small temples for every other star in the constellation. Those temples map out the city underground and are made out of a special stone not found anywhere else in Egypt called Koinon stone. Incredibly enough, very recently, ancient tunnels were found in Romania that led to both Egypt and the inner earth. Now, I don't have time to go into detail about this particular story, but if you want, check out the book Transylvanian Sunrise by Radu Sinemar. To be clear, this is a theory that has not been accepted by the Egyptian government, but the underground city that Thoth said was there is, according to Mr. Hunter, marked by temples made of a unique substance, and the temples match the star pattern of the constellation of Orion. 4,000 years after the stair-step evolution, we were at our lowest stage of our evolution. We were hitting bottom on the awareness road. Suddenly, out of the darkness, three men came to Earth to give us a little nudge. Everything in is that Buddy Christ? Synthetic. They had this entire civilization based around achieving heightened states of consciousness, but they had to do it through tools. Now, we're not going to look at each of these tools individually, but let me give you a brief overview here. This tool was used for transferring vibrations into the body. Along with that were the hook and flail. This little device was a kind of generator to increase vibrations, though there's not too much information available on it. Looks like a Tesla this coil. Thing, however, was their right? most important tool, the Ankh. They saw the Ankh as the secret to eternal life, and they used it not as a physical tool, but as an energetic one. They would use this form and onk their sexual energy. Now, this <laughs> could be a huge topic on its own, like how energy travels up and down the body through a vertical tube between five energy channels that counter-rotate as they extend through the body. But basically, sexual energy is an incredibly powerful energy. We definitely abuse it today, but what the Egyptians knew was that when you had an orgasm, a very large amount of energy bursts from your root chakra all the way up your spine to the top of your head, and then it gets released. What the Egyptians would do was when the spiral of energy hit their heart chakra, they would onk the energy out of the back of their body and over their head and back into their body, where they would keep the energy and retain a massive energy boost. Damn. In other words, if you take a tuning fork and hit it, it will reverberate for a certain amount of time. Then, if you attach an onk on top of it and hit it again, it will reverberate at least three times longer. The Egyptians were doing this with their bodies. Moving on, when Atlantis was first formed, the Nikal set up something called a mystery school. This is a special type of school where you learn about consciousness, and you learn different aspects of expanding your own consciousness, and eventually getting to a place where you become immortal. It usually took a very long time to achieve this state, and that's why there were only about 1,000 Nikals in comparison to the millions of Lemurians at the start of Atlantis. The first Atlantean to reach the immortal state was a man named Osiris. Ancient Egypt's mythology tells a story about Osiris, a man who was killed and cut up into pieces by his brother in an act of rage, and then the pieces were scattered. This event, perhaps less exaggerated than the myths, actually did happen, and it took place on Atlantis. Osiris's wife and sister retrieved the pieces, and upon returning the final piece, they restored the creative energy flow and brought his spirit back into the body. Through doing this, Osiris became immortal, and he was the first immortal of Atlantis. This story is told throughout ancient Egypt on many temple walls, and I'm going to show you why. Osiris went through the three stages of consciousness. The first one was whole, the second was separated from itself, included physically, and the third was whole again. The Nikals used Osiris' understanding of how he became immortal as a template for how others could do it as well, only through consciousness, without needing to be cut up, of course. This eventually became what we would call the religion of Atlantis, but it was more of a deeper understanding that they were following. This template was also used in Egypt, which we will look at now. Through the stair-step evolution, we began to change from the first level of consciousness into the second. Before the fall, we had incredible memories. It wasn't this vague recollection that we have now, but today we might see it as full-tilt 3D holographic memory. <coughs> After the fall, we still had a photographic memory and could share these experiences with each other, which is called dream time. It is what the Aborigines of Australia still have today. 
through the introduction of writing, however, we began to change from the first level of consciousness into the second. We lost our incredible memories and became very separate from each other and ourselves. Thoth was the one who introduced writing. And if you look at ancient Egyptian culture, it even says, Thoth brought writing to us, as well as many other things. Now that we were in the second level, over time, things began to change, and a very serious problem developed, which if it hadn't been solved, it would have caused a major catastrophe in our own near future. Basically, in Egypt, the Ascended Masters had used Osiris' genetic coding of changing chromosomes to show others the path of ascension. They developed a system of 42 and 2 gods, with a lowercase g. They were actually called Neaters. Most will recognize this one. His name was Anubis. There were 42 and 2 Neaters who were representative uh -huh. chromosomes. Each one of them showed a specific pathway of life or human experience, and people would follow these understandings to learn more about their life or their own reality. Whoa. The Crazy. So sick. And right? Egypt became more separated That's from a themselves, trip. And the meanings of these needers were lost. Over time, the drawings of these needers <coughs> changed, and the meanings changed with them. People had no idea what they meant. Then it got worse, when the Egyptian king Minas merged Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt into a unified country. Minas also merged the belief systems, so now you had 88 gods that people were fighting over to decide who was really god. This was an issue, because now they had people not knowing what to believe completely lost, separated from their understanding of their own divinity and God. Things became separated further, people fought over which gods were really gods. Today, we look back and say, wow, <laughs> they thought there were so many gods, when really, this wasn't the case at all. Even with the help from the Tat Brotherhood, we just couldn't get it right. There was one short period of Egyptian culture that most historians don't really understand. As it's written in ancient texts and hieroglyphs, for 17 and a half years, there was a bizarre new ruler that completely changed how Egypt was run and his name was Akhenaten. Before him, there were only kings. Akhenaten was the first pharaoh, which meant that which you will become. He was also, believe it or not, 15 to 16 feet tall, at least that's how he was always depicted, and had an elongated skull. Both of these aspects are related to Christ consciousness. Akhenaten abolished all previous understandings of God and tried to instill a one God understanding in everyone. After 17 years, the majority of Egyptians Sonic. revolted and Akhenaten right. was killed, soon to be replaced by someone else, returning to the old system. What actually happened? To correct the problem, Thoth got the help from I and Tia, who were the first immortals from Lemuria, and got them to mate interdimensionally to conceive a Christ consciousness being. Nice. Thoth said that he worked with the previous kings of Egypt to help achieve this, and Egyptologists find that Akhenaten came completely out of nowhere. It took some time, and there was a transitional period involving Amenhotep III, but soon Akhenaten was on the throne. Akhenaten used his time to bring Egypt back to a simple religion where there was one god, one reality. He used imagery of a sun disk to represent this. The priests in Egypt didn't like that because the religious beliefs were centered on the priests. Then he comes along and says, you don't need priests, God is within you, and you can access God from within your own selves. Well, they didn't like that. He also pulled the military back and said, don't attack unless someone else attacks first. The military didn't like him either. Plus, the people generally didn't like him because they enjoyed worshipping their many gods. Eventually, they disposed of him. After all that, what did Akhenaten do that evidently saved humankind? Well, he developed the Mystery School, with the intention of showing a small group of humans a way to ascend into the immortal state. Usually, it took hundreds of years to reach the level of immortality, and Akhenaten had 17 years to produce results. This was a very close call, but he did it. He actually showed 300 individuals the path to immortality in this short time. So after the general population disposed of Akhenaten, these 300 immortals would go beyond Egypt. Thoth wrote in the Emerald Tablets that after Ancient Egypt ended, he brought a man named Pythagoras into the Great Pyramid and taught him the geometry of the universe. That man then went on to found Greece, 
which was originally built upon schools for teaching geometry and the platonic solids and all of that stuff. Filth lived a lifetime here as well, where he was known as Hermes Trismegustus. Akhenaten's immortals became a group called the Essene Brotherhood. They first migrated to a place called Masada in Israel. Even today, Masada is known as the capital of the Essene Brotherhood. Now get this. In this brotherhood, there were two people in particular, a man and a woman. You might have heard of them. Mary and Joseph? See, it was part of the Ascended Master's plan that they would bring in a being who would show the pathway to Christ Consciousness. He would come to Earth as a second-level being, a regular Joe, and achieve Christ Consciousness through the course of his life. Then, the Ascension process, the transitional experience from the second to third level, would go into the Consciousness Grid that was still being formed. He was able to transition because he was originally from these higher levels. That man is known today as Jesus, although his name at that time was Yahshua Ben-Hur. If Yahshua had not shown up, we would not have had that ascension experience available to us today. None of us would be aware that these higher levels of understanding even existed, and we would destroy ourselves. According to what Thoth said, Mary and Joseph made it interdimensionally. Mary could have been a virgin, physically, but she made it with Joseph in a way that would allow a soul from a higher reality to come down to Earth and have a human experience. Usually, this is impossible to do otherwise. Through Yahshua's work, he came here just like us, a total human being, but he went through these three important stages, final death, resurrection, and ascension, and gave us these experiences so that we could access them down the road. Now, as we all know, the story of Jesus has a missing piece. He was a child, disappeared for some time, and then showed up again when he was 30. In a book called The 18 Absent Years of Jesus Christ, the leading theories about where he went was actually out east to either the Himalayan or Tibetan mountains, where he became an enlightened guru. He brought his teachings back to the world after that. If you remember from part one, the Kundalini of the planet was residing in Tibet at that time. They were very spiritually adept people living there, and remain so today. Now, on the topic of Christ, there's something else I'd like to bring up. The Lord's Prayer. Today, we know this as the only prayer that Jesus taught, but did you know it's actually a geometric prayer meditation? A man named Bodhi McCoy spent over 20 years working with this prayer and analyzing it with sacred geometry, and has discovered some incredible synchronicities. In his book, Live the Promise, he explains how the original prayer, not the extended version, mind you, has seven segments or thoughts, which align perfectly with the seven chakras as well as the seven original branches of yoga. Bodhi teaches how to do this prayer meditation, as well as meditations him and his wife have developed based on the Lord's Prayer, called Heart Dances. It's really quite incredible to see how it all works with the pure geometries of the universe. If you wish to learn more, check out livethepromise.net. If you study Christian religion and Egyptian religion, you'll actually find that they parallel in almost every way except for the Egyptians' understanding of God. Most evidence shows that Christian religion came out of Egyptian religion, and then later they went back and discredited the Egyptians. That's crazy. Yep. I like that story. Yep. It totally makes sense. Yeah, on, on so many levels of so many different things in... in I don't know. You just have to be. Um, you you had to be open-minded. Yeah. You know we talk about it all the time, and nothing's ever set in stone because we lost so much information as a species that there's no way for us to know everything yet. You know, eventually we will all um, consciously be aware of some facts, but until those facts come out. We're really kind of left in the dark, you know. So we we all have to assume based on facts that we find. And so far, all the facts that we found just don't add all the way up yet. So there's always room for interpretation. There's always ways to learn new things. Right? And it's a never-ending quest, right? That's right. And... uh 
you know, the whole thing is uh, stay open-minded. Some crazy shit. It's a... it's some crazy stories, and I think that, uh, you know, I think that Buddhists, I'm really intrigued with the Buddhist religion, and I think that uh, they, like, know some shit that we don't. They definitely do. Most definitely do. So you got to take that into account. Yeah, I mean, I mean, all the things that we learn, these extreme things like this, that we start to learn end up eventually becoming fact you know and and it's all part of being what we are and the power of our brains you know and and it's like it's intense man um we we see people do superhuman things every day that was the theme of this whole mini series yeah and, and you know um everybody could have those possibilities if they chose to sacrifice to get them yeah you know and you know consciousness is a crazy thing and your mind is very powerful your body's powerful and we are powerful as a race so you know there's a lot of things that seem impossible that aren't so you know flex them brain muscles that's right go out there be creative be conscious and don't just be a zombie in life don't be a dick don't be a zombie dick because i don't think those get hard probably not <laughs> Probably not. Unless, unless it's rigor mortis. <laughs> oh. Yeah, but then you'd have to die. I, I always wondered how, like, like when you find out like that some chick that works in, like, a morgue or a mortuary was raping the dead bodies. Yeah. It's like, how did you, like, tie a popsicle stick to the side of it like you do with a baby tree? Rigor mortis. What about this? Here's a, here's a new zombie <laughs> thing. Uh, how come if zombies are dead and then become reanimated, their blood should coagulate? And like you know, it should turn hard, and it should be fucking yeah part of the rigor mortis. Zombies should eventually freeze in well, time. You know what I'm saying? Because they become so stiff, they can't move anymore. See, but I think that zombies, uh, zombies' blood is still pumping. How? Because a zombie's only as alive as the person. Like, like you have to be bitten and then die and then become a zombie. So you don't really actually die. You kind of pass out, and then the zombie virus takes over. Well, that's your theory. There's not going to be, like, rising from the grave or anything like that. Oh, no, man. Dying that's means a, your heart stops. That's Max, heart, that's Max Brooks's theory. If your heart stops and then you become reanimated, it could be maybe only your brain working and not your heart. I don't know. There's only one way to find out, and that's to wait for the zombie apocalypse. Maybe the zombie virus turns into like a way to constantly oxygenate the brain so you don't need a heart anymore. Ooh. Maybe. And then maybe if we could figure out a way to harness it, then we could live forever, keep our brains oxygenated, and just switch out our body parts with 3D printed things. The immortal Z virus. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. what if it what if it turns out to save us? I like it. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, we'll See, find that out on another open day. Open minds, right? Open minds. Open minds. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll see you guys on Thursday. Natural Habitat Recordings.